Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Ship Show. The markets have been pretty quiet over the last couple of days, so I really don't uh, feel like spending any time on today's podcast talking about the markets. I probably will have more to say maybe on Thursday when I'll probably do another podcast because Jerome Powell is making his way up to Capitol Hill tomorrow and Thursday uh, to testify before the House and the Senate. And my guess is that some of his comments may move the markets, the currency markets, the gold market, maybe even the stock market. So I'll probably have more uh, market-oriented commentary uh, to, uh, to give you guys on, on Thursday. But, you know, there's a few things on my mind, which is why I wanted to take some time today and record this podcast. One has to do with Art Laffer. And, of course, Art Laffer uh, gained fame back in the Reagan era. He came up with the Laffer Curve, uh, named after him, that he supposedly sketched out on a napkin one day and showed it to Ronald Reagan. And the Laffer Curve basically is that when you reduce taxes or lower tax rates, marginal tax rates, you actually end up collecting higher tax revenue because you incentivize people to work more, they work more, they earn more, and then they pay more taxes even if they are paying taxes at a lower rate. Now, obviously, you know, the Laffer curve bends at some point because if taxes are zero, right, you collect no revenue. And if taxes are 100%, you also collect no revenue, right? Because if you're going to tax somebody 100% of their income, they're not going to work at all because nobody is a complete idiot. You're not going to work for nothing. So at a 100% tax rate and a 0% tax rate, the government collects exactly zero taxes. So somewhere along that curve is an optimal point where you would have the tax rate that generates the most amount of revenue. Now, personally, I don't think taxes should be uh, devised so that you can maximize revenue to the government. What I want to do is keep the government as small as possible and then try to find the most efficient way to fund government through taxation, not try to find the taxes that maximize the amount of money the government gets. But the point of the Laffer curve was that prior to the election of Ronald Reagan, Art Laffer was pointing out that where the government was on the curve, that income tax rates were so high that if they cut the marginal rate, that the government would actually generate more revenue and not less. And he was probably right at that point, given where the marginal rates were. So uh, his point was good, and Reagan came in, 
in, in the 80s, and we had the huge reduction in marginal tax rates. The big problem, of course, was that government spending continued to increase, and that destroyed the benefits of the increased tax revenue because government expenditures were growing even faster, and we had the big increase in deficit spending under Ronald Reagan. But the reason that I wanted to talk about Art Laffer was not to go back over what happened during the 80s, but to talk about what Art Laffer was on television yesterday. He was actually on both Fox Business and CNBC on the same day. He was on CNBC in the morning, and then he was on Fox Business later in the afternoon. Normally, uh, these networks don't like to see the same guest on both networks, but I guess they made an exception because he's a big name, and I guess they they think it's a coup when they get to have him on there. Because after all, Art Laffer is the most recent recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I'm not really sure what he did uh, to merit that that medal that was presented by uh, President Trump. But anyway, he now has the Congressional or the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, But it appears to me that he is now bucking for more than a medal. I think he wants a job in the Trump administration because he basically was out there really uh, singing the president's praises. He was talking about how great the economy was. And not only do we have this great economy, but it was all because of Trump, that Trump deserved credit for such a spectacular economy, that he inherited this lousy economy from Obama. Things were terrible. And now everything is great. And of course, I've pointed out many times that for most you know, practical purposes, you really can't tell the difference between the two economies other than the fact that there's some more optimism among Republicans regarding the economy. But if you just look at a lot of the charts and a lot of the numbers, there's no difference. And even where there has been an improvement, like the unemployment rate officially is lower, it's simply a continuation of a trend that was in existence the entire time Obama was president. But despite the fact that there's really no significant difference uh, between the two economies, uh, Art Laffer is talking about how great everything is now and how horrible everything was uh, before. And I haven't seen Art Laffer this excited about the U.S. economy since I was on CNBC with him on Larry Kudlow's show. And Kudlow wasn't there. He had a guest host. And it was me and Art Laffer. And it was 2006. And we were talking about the economy under Bush. And, you know, you can see this uh, the part of the interview or the, the segment was in the Peter Schiff was right video, but the entire, I think, nine or 10 minute segment is on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. And this is where Art Laffer, you know, had that famous bet with me, at least famous in certain circles, where he bet me a penny. The bet was his idea. It wasn't mine. Art Laffer basically decided to bet me a penny. Uh, but more important than the penny was the note, because the loser of the bet was supposed to send the winner a note basically admitting that he was wrong and the winner was right, right? So Art Laffer came up with the rules and came up with the bet and then welched on it when he lost, right? Because what happened was Art Laffer in 2006 said the economy is great. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing out there on the horizon. Uh, We're not going to have a recession. I mean, it was possible we could have a small slowdown, but nothing to worry about. Everything was great. The economy was booming. And I was crazy for worrying about uh, the housing market and a bubble and a recession and all that. And remember, this is, you know, before the peak of the bubble, the burst. We had the financial crisis, 2008, right? All hell broke loose. Uh, The worst collapse since the Great Depression would have been even worse, probably without the bailouts that simply postponed the pain. But clearly, anybody that goes back and watches that uh, interview and would conclude that I won that bet, and that Laffer lost, and by not paying me, uh, he welched. Now, I did see an interview with Art Laffer on Bill Maher, and Bill Maher actually brought up that debate. He didn't bring up my name, but he said, hey, you were on a debate, and you said everything was great, and this other guy said it was we were going to have a crash, and you said there was nothing to worry about, and he said a crisis was coming, and he goes, you were clearly wrong. I want to know if you've paid off that bet. And then Art Laffer basically tried to weasel out of it by saying that, well, he didn't really lose because, you know, it took more than a year for everything to collapse and therefore he wasn't really wrong 
because the decline that I talked about didn't happen immediately. But I don't think Bill Maher was buying any of it. I think it was clear that that Laffer was wrong and he kind of held his head down in, in a bit of shame. But he still never, uh, you know, sent me the penny, never sent me the note, never said anything to me uh, about that. But in any event, now he's on television, you know, just as optimistic about the economy now as he was back then. And of course, the reason he's optimistic is because there's a Republican president and he's a very partisan guy. And so if there's a Republican president, then we must have a great economy. And so therefore he is talking about how great this economy is. But he's saying everything that Donald Trump wants to hear about how great the economy is. And then he is also criticizing the Fed for their bad monetary policy. He's saying that the Federal Reserve made a mistake, they shouldn't have raised rates the last time they raised rates, and that they need to cut rates right now. That the Fed is making a mistake in not cutting rates. And the reason that he is claiming they're making a mistake is he says that the markets are leading the Fed and that the markets have already reduced rates and it's up to the Fed to follow the markets. That the Fed is supposed to follow, not lead. And since the markets have brought rates down, the Fed needs to take its cue from the market and lower rates. Well, first of all, what Art Laffer doesn't understand is that the only reason the markets have moved rates down is because the markets can see a recession coming. The Fed is ignoring it, right? Which it normally does. Either it's blind to it or it sees it, but it refuses to admit it. But the markets see the recession. The Fed doesn't see it. And so the markets are trying to price in what they believe the Fed will do once the Fed has to acknowledge that a recession exists. Now, it's pretty obvious what the Fed does when there's a recession. It tries to stimulate the economy by cutting interest rates. So what the markets are doing is factoring that in now. They're pricing in the rate cuts that they expect to happen once the Fed acknowledges what they already know, that the economy is going into recession. So the reason the markets have moved before the Fed is because the markets are anticipating what the Fed is going to do. But of course, what the Fed is going to do is wrong. It is a mistake. It was a mistake when they did it last time. This Keynesian playbook that they're operating out of is wrong. We don't need lower interest rates. We actually need higher interest rates. We don't need to try to you know, reflate asset prices. We don't need higher stock prices and higher real estate prices. We need lower asset prices. They're too high. The economy is distorted. We need more savings. We need underconsumption. We need capital investment. None of these things are going to be incentivized by the Fed just slashing interest rates again, just trying to reflate the bubbles. But the markets know that the Fed has not had any kind of epiphany. So the markets are simply discounting the mistake that they know the Fed is going to make. Now, of course, the markets don't even know it's a mistake. They just know the Fed's going to do it, right? Now, if we had a real independent Federal Reserve that made it clear that it wasn't in the business of reflating asset bubbles, that it wasn't in the business of propping up economies or propping up government and monetizing government debt, if the Fed made it clear right now that interest rates are going to be set by the market and not by the Fed. And the Fed is not going to uh, manipulate interest rates lower just because the economy is in recession, right? If the Fed made that clear and the markets believed them, interest rates would be going up right now, not down, even though the markets would sense a recession coming. If they knew the Fed was not going to try to rescue the economy and rescue the markets, by doing more QE and rate rate cuts, then they wouldn't be buying treasuries now. They would probably be selling them. They would recognize that part of the solution to our current problem involves higher, not lower interest rates. If you want to incentivize savings, you need higher interest rates. If you want to discourage consumption and borrowing, higher interest rates do that too. So the solution to the problems involve higher interest rates, and that's what we would be getting if it wasn't for the Fed. So we can't be saying that the Fed should be taking its cue from the market and following the market when the markets are simply anticipating the mistakes that they know the Fed is going to make. So Laffer is completely wrong in his assessment of why the Fed uh, should be cutting rates. But the more important statements that he's been making and that I really want to talk about is his assertion that because the Fed is making so many mistakes and because Fed officials are unelected and unaccountable, that we should not even have an independent Federal Reserve. 
he is saying that the monetary policy decisions should be made by the president, right? I mean, I don't know if he's saying the president and Congress working together, but most likely just the president, because after all, Congress can't do anything without deliberation, right? Without a vote, they have to pass it. And sometimes monetary policy decisions need to be made uh, relatively quickly. And it doesn't seem like it would be something that the Congress uh, would handle. So I think that what Laffer is getting at, especially since Trump is president, is that he thinks the commander in chief should not only command the army, but also command interest rates, command monetary policy, that the president should set the monetary policy, which would be a complete unmitigated disaster. I mean, first of all, I mean, doesn't Art Laffer worry about what a Democratic president would do if he controlled the printing press? I mean, what if Barack Obama uh, had the printing press for the last eight years? I mean, if you like Trump and you think Trump will do a good job, well, what about whoever succeeds Trump? What if we get Bernie Sanders or Camilla Harris? Or what if one day uh, AOC, right, uh, the bartender, became president? You really want the bartender, uh, you know, in charge of monetary policy? I mean, you have to think whatever powers that you give to a Republican president, a Democratic president is going to possess those same powers, right? But it doesn't matter. I don't trust a Republican president to do the right thing either. They're not. Trump clearly wouldn't. I mean, all presidents care about their own reelection. They care about short term. And so they're not going to make monetary policy decisions that are in the long-term interest of the nation. They will be making monetary policy based on their short-term political aspirations. I mean, clearly that's going to happen regardless of whether you're a Republican or Democrat. So the whole idea that we should drop the pretense that the Fed is independent and just turn over the presses to the president of the United States, I mean, that is a recipe for disaster because as reckless as the Fed has been when it was controlled by you know supposedly independent people, uh, it would have been much worse had it been directly controlled uh, by the presidents or, you know, or by Congress. I mean, if you go back to the origins of the Federal Reserve, I don't even think they would have allowed it if it wasn't independent. Remember, the Federal Reserve was set up as a private company, right? It's not even part of the federal government. And the reason for that is that if you go and look at the monetary provisions of the Constitution, and they, you know, they followed the Constitution a lot better, you know, 100 years ago when they created the Fed. And the, the government, the federal government, is not even authorized to create paper money. They called it emit bills of credit. That's how it's written into the Constitution. The only thing the federal government was able to do as far as money, was to coin it, right? They could take gold and silver, which were defined as money in the Constitution, because the Constitution uh, basically prohibits the states from making anything other than gold and silver coin uh, legal tender and payment of debts. And the federal government isn't given the authority to do that, so it doesn't have it. The only authority with respect to money that the federal government has is to coin it. And what does coin money mean? It means take money, which is gold and silver, and make it into a coin. And they and they are able to affix the standard of weights and measures so they can define how much gold or silver is in a dollar and then they can make coins, right? That's what they can do. Coining money doesn't mean printing money. In fact, if you go back to the earliest version of the Constitution, Congress was actually given the authority to coin money and emit bills of credit. Bills of credit was what they called paper money. Well, they actually struck it. They actually had a vote and nine to two, they voted to take out emit bills of credit. So they actually originally thought about letting the federal government print money, and then they thought better of it, and they took the power away. So the only power they had was to take gold and silver, which was defined as money, and make it into a coin. And so when they created the Federal Reserve, people knew this, right? So they created an, an independent agency, or not agency, an independent corporation, the Federal Reserve, banking system, and it was the Federal Reserve that was issuing the bills of credit, not Congress, not the federal government. So that was part of the reason it was constitutional, because it wasn't the government that was doing it. It was this independent entity that was issuing it, and not the government. And in fact, even if you go back, the very first time the federal government issued any paper money were the greenbacks during the Civil War. And the greenbacks were actually redeemable in lawful money in gold and silver, uh, but the, the, uh, the union was issuing paper money. And the constitutionality of that paper money 
was questioned. And, you know, there were a series of, of, of Supreme Court cases having to deal with the constitutionality of the government uh, issuing these greenbacks because, it you know, it didn't have the authority to do that under the monetary provisions. And the interesting part about these cases, if you read them, the way the courts justified validating the constitutionality of the paper money. And of course, if anybody questions the constitutionality of paper money today, well, you know, they would go back and they would cite uh, these cases, Knox versus Lee, I think Griswold versus Hepburn. I forget the names of these cases, uh, but there's a few legal tender cases. Uh, but they, they cite these cases. But what the cases held was constitutional is not, you know, the Federal Reserve notes that exist today. What the court said was that since there was an emergency, we had a war and the union was potentially threatened, that based on a wartime power, that Congress had the authority to issue paper money during the emergency of a war. And remember, that money was redeemable in gold and silver when the war was over. So you were, they were issuing redeemable notes during wartime. So what does that have to do with issuing irredeemable notes during peacetime? Nothing. And the other interesting thing about it is the court didn't look to the monetary part of the Constitution. The court did not argue that the government had the authority to create paper money under Article 1, Section 8, right, where it can coin money. They knew that that didn't mean it. So they had to go to the necessary and proper clause and basically say, look, they had to do this because they had no other choice because the union was falling apart. We were in this big civil war. And so in order to preserve the union, uh, they had this wartime power. And, and so that's what justified it. I mean, nobody believed at the time that the Congress had within it, uh, in its monetary authority during peacetime, the ability to print paper money because they clearly did not. So had the powers of the Fed initially been vested in Congress and the president, they never would have been able to pass the Federal Reserve Act. But of course, today we have absolutely no respect whatsoever for the Constitution. And I'm sure the constitutionality of the executive branch of government just simply, you know, giving, being given all the powers of the Fed, right? I'm sure nobody would give a damn about that. Nobody would question it. Everybody just assumes that the government can do whatever it wants because paper money is so common and so many other countries have paper money that there's no reason why we can't have it either. I mean, the difference is we're governed by a constitution. Those other nations may not have a constitution that's the way ours is that prohibits it or that doesn't allow the federal government to issue it. Um, and, you know, the states can't do it either. Remember, the states are prohibited from doing it. The states can only uh, make gold and silver legal tender. And, and since the federal government isn't given the power to make anything legal tender, all it could do is um, coin money. And the only money that it could constitutionally coin is gold and silver. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, that's, you know, now, of course, I mean, they, they, they can coin uh, pennies and nickels, right, which were made of copper and nickel, but they weren't legal tender. Right. I mean, legal, the only the, the only money that was legal tender for payment of bills and payment of taxes was not copper and nickel. I mean, they were used in commerce, but it wasn't legal tender. The legal tender uh, was made of silver. So you're talking about dimes, quarters, half dollars, silver dollars and then gold. That was what was legal tender. But the idea now that Art Laffer is floating around that we would be better served if Donald Trump made monetary policy on his own. You know, or maybe he had to consult with, I don't know who in Congress would get behind closed doors. But clearly, this is a huge conflict of interest because now you have no separation at all uh, between government and the printing press. I mean, obviously, you know, if to the extent that we were able to run these huge deficits when there was at least, you know, the trappings of independence, when at least there was a central bank that in theory could have refused to monetize the debt. But now you get a president who wants to spend all sorts of money on all sorts of programs and doesn't want to raise taxes, well, he just prints money. He doesn't have to worry about whether or not the Fed is going to go along with his plan. They just do it. I mean, think about, again, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, if she comes in there and she's the president one day when she's finally 35 years old or whatever, or some socialist comes in and, and wants a universal basic income or uh, free college or government jobs, if they could just crank up the money to pay for all their programs, not even have to worry that the Fed is going to stand in their way, of course they're going to do it. So this is a recipe for disaster. He's going on television, getting all kinds of airtime, raising the idea that we shouldn't have an independent central bank, that the president should command the interest rates and command monetary policy the same way he commands the armed force or anything else. 
Um, and just like Art Laffer was completely wrong about everything in 2006, he is completely wrong about everything he's saying now. And again, all this cheerleading for this bubble economy is going to blow up in the faces of the Republicans, of Donald Trump. And, of course, maybe some of this talk about uh, getting rid of the independence of the Fed and having the president take over the Fed, it may not happen during Trump's administration. But what we may be doing is laying the foundation for the next socialist president if the Federal Reserve tries to stand in the way of their socialist agenda, if they try to prevent the monetization of debt, now that the Republicans have already you know, floated the trial balloon, that may be enough for the Democrats to bring it home and under a Democratic administration, deliver the power of the Fed uh, to, uh, to the president, just like they may end up packing the Supreme Court by, by stacking it with some more socialist justices if some of the justices that are there now do the right thing and strike down some of the unconstitutional laws and programs that are likely to be enacted in 2021, 2022, right, as we're trying to complete the New Deal by completing the move of the United States to a socialist country, if we start to see some, you know, justices striking this stuff down, well, they can pack the court with some of their flunkies uh, who will approve this. So we get the, go the government taken over the Supreme Court, we get them taken over the Federal Reserve, doesn't look good. In fact, I looked at some pretty good examples of the stupidity of government and, and government programs. Remember, of course, it all boils down to free stuff, right? That's what politicians are all about. It's about promising something for nothing to the voters because that's very appealing. If you promise somebody something for nothing, they want it. And so all they have to do is vote for you. It costs nothing to vote, right? Just give somebody your vote. And in exchange for that vote, they give you something that you didn't work for. And where do they get it? Well, they take it from somebody else, right, that you don't know, some rich guy that doesn't deserve the money as much as you do. And in the name of fairness, I'm going to vote for this candidate, and this candidate's going to steal some money, although we don't regard it as stealing. We just call it, you know, wealth redistribution, a progressive tax policy, and we take money that I didn't earn and, and, and give it to me. But generally, when the Democrats are promising free stuff, they just can't, you know, say I'm going to give everybody, you know, a free a TV set, you know, or a free motorcycle or a free vacation. I mean, you know, I mean, even though that's what people want, I mean, a lot of times you just can't come out and promise all these goodies. So you always have to couch uh, the free stuff uh, in something that it's hard for Republicans to be against, uh, such as uh, paid uh, medical leave, right? I mean, that's an issue now that's getting very popular. Your employers should... Everybody should be able to get uh, time off to take care of uh, a new baby or to take care of a sick relative, right? Who's going to be against that, right? I mean, so everybody should get uh, some paid leave, some money in order to take care of, uh, you know, somebody who who is sick, right? But obviously, money is fungible. So to the extent that you get money uh, for one purpose, if I don't have to spend some money on medical bills or taking care of somebody, well, then... I can use that savings to buy, you know, buy a television set or something that, that I actually want. So whenever you're promising free money or free stuff, right, it's not necessarily what uh, the money is meant to provide that the voter is thinking for. It's, hey, if I don't have to pay for this, well, then I have extra money to, to buy that. But when it comes to this family medical leave, right, right now there is a, uh, a federal law already on the books where you can get... I think up to 12 weeks a year of unpaid leave, right? As long as you meet certain criteria, you can get unpaid leave. But unpaid leave for most people uh, is not that big a goodie because after all, I mean, you need the money, right? I mean, a lot of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck, even if they need to take time off, they can't afford to go 12 weeks without a paycheck. So the, the ability to get unpaid leave uh, doesn't excite a lot of people. I mean, you're only going to take the leave if you you really, really need it. I mean, if there really is an emergency and you can't go to work, you have stuff to do and, you know, and you, you can get leave. And and I think in most cases, 
a lot of employers under those circumstances would let you take the time off anyway. I mean, if there really was a legitimate emergency, although now you can use it if you want just for childbirth, right? If you have a child, you can take 12 weeks off to bond with your child. But again, most people can't afford that. They need to go back to work because they need the money so they can support the child. That's more important than the extra bonding time. But the reason I'm even bringing it up now is because the state of Connecticut, I didn't even notice this until I read an article today, but a few weeks ago, uh, our governor signed into law and it's not really our governor because, I mean, I don't live in Connecticut anymore. I just I just have a summer house here. I live in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, but anyway, the governor of Connecticut signed this bill, and none of the Republicans in the state legislature uh, voted for it. So, And even some of the Democrats were smart enough to vote against it. But it is the most generous paid family medical leave act in the country, right? Of all the states that have it, this one is the most generous, and basically it's the most stupid. But it's a perfect example of the something for nothing, but how politicians are unable to understand moral hazard and unintended consequences. I mean, these concepts are so simple, it's almost like you have to be an elected official not to understand them. But I'm gonna go through uh, you know, this particular bill. So what this does is everybody in the state of Connecticut that has a job for W-2, right? You have to be an employee on W-2. Right, not a 1099, you can't work for yourself. You have to be employed, W-2 wages. Uh, and it applies to, even if your employer only has one employee, right? So even if you're working for uh, one guy, right? You're the only employee. I think the the uh, the national one, which gives you not unpaid leave, I think it only applies if you're working for a company that has at least 50 or more employees. The Connecticut law applies to everybody. So even if you're the only employee that, that an employer has, you can still take your 12 weeks off and you get paid leave and you get 95% of your salary, 95% of your salary. Now it's capped at $900 a week. Uh, so obviously if you're a high income guy, if you're making, you know, 500,000 a year, a million dollars a year, you know, the prospect of getting a $900 a week, you know, while you're taking time off, I mean, that's no big deal, right? So it's not going to have much of an effect on the higher income. But let's say you earn 50000 a year. Right? If you earn 50000 a year, you get about $960 a week if you show up for work. But if you decide not to show up because you have some kind of emergency, well, you're going to get $900 a week. Well, if you have a choice between working for $960 or not working for $900, what idiot is going to pick option one, work and collect $960 when I've got option two, don't work and collect $900. I mean, first of all, who's going to work for the extra $60 a week? Nobody. But it's actually not even an extra $60 because it costs the typical worker who has a job more than $60 a week just to show up for work. Right, because you have to get to your office, right? So you got to commute, you got to drive back and forth. How long is that going to take you? How much gas is that going to require? I'm sure it's at least sixty bucks a week. That's like one tank of gas, not even. I'm sure it takes at least a ta tank of gas uh, to get back and forth to work. Now, some people might have a toll to pay. I don't know. Some people might have to pay for parking. I'm not sure. But then, of course, you have extra wear and tear on your car, so you have more maintenance required on your car if you're driving back and forth to work every day. So there's a lot of money that employees lay out in transportation costs. None of this is deductible against their taxes too. Uh, so they have to spend that out-of-pocket money in order to get to work. And again, the, it's not just money, it's time. I mean, maybe you have an hour commute or at least a half hour each way. That's an hour a day. You're not getting paid for that commute time. You're just sitting in traffic, right? So, I mean, if you don't have to go to work, you don't have to commute. You save that time. Right? What about the time to get ready for work? Right? In the morning, you got to take a shower, you got to get dressed. I mean, I know women in particular, it takes them a lot longer. And this is not a sexist statement. This is just reality. I mean, women, you know, they do their hair, they do their makeup. I mean, it takes women a lot longer to get dressed for work than men, right? Well, if you don't have to go to work, you don't have to do that. You save all that time. Then you got the cost of dry cleaning all your work clothes, right? That costs money. And, you know, if you're working, chances are maybe you're eating lunch in a restaurant uh, instead of just making a meal at home. So there is a lot of costs associated with collecting that paycheck. All of those costs are saved, right, if you have a, uh, 
a, a medical leave. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to say, well, Peter, I mean, but, you know, you can't just uh, take take the 12 weeks off, right? You have to either give birth, you have to have a new baby, or you have to adopt a baby, right? You have to have a new baby, or you have to be taking care of a sick family member, which is true. But if you actually read the language of the law, they define what a family member is. And a family member can be a member of your immediate family, right? Your spouse, your children, your parents, or it could be a close friend that you regard as a family member. See, there is the loophole that you can drive a Mack truck through. A friend that you regard as a family member. Now, a lot of that is probably there for, you know, uh, uh, gay, lesbian, where, you know, you may, I'm not married, I have a partner or something like that, but it, it could be anybody. I mean, anybody that you want to claim you feel, oh, that guy, he's, he's like my brother, right? Oh, we're really close. The guy's like my brother. Oh, she's like my sister. She's the daughter I never had, right? Okay, fine. So those people qualify for family members. So it's very easy for somebody to come up with a, a family member that, um, that they claim that they need to take care of. But then, of course, the family member has to be sick, right? You just can't, you know, you just can't claim that I'm going to have to do it. They have to be sick. Well, what is the definition of somebody who's sick in need of care? Well, Connecticut didn't create one. They basically said, we're going to use the same definition as the federal government uses for the federal uh, act. But remember, the family medical leave on the federal books is at least governed by the fact that it's unpaid. So people don't have as great an incentive to cheat and game the system because they don't have any monetary benefit. Uh, but here you're, you're offering a huge monetary carrot. You're basically, the people who don't go to work are going to make more money than the people who do work. In addition, they're going to get all this free time. They're going to get a 12-week vacation. So if you could get a paid vacation where you actually get paid more than what you would earn if you went to work, you've got a powerful incentive for people to game this system. So it's very easy. Uh, we, we know now for people to come up with a, a family member because anybody is in your family. But listen to how the federal government defines uh, illness. A serious health condition, right? You have to have a serious health condition. That's what it says. So a serious health condition is an illness, injury, impairment, or physical or mental condition that involves inpatient care or continuing treatment by a health care provider. That's it. Now, the minute you put the word mental in there, I mean, that's you open that wide open. I mean, you could have, I'm stressed out. I've got attention deficit disorder. Uh, you know, I've got an addiction. Uh, I've, I'm an alcoholic or a drug. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can claim would constitute a serious health condition or an injury or an impairment or something. And it just needs to require continued treatment. It doesn't say how much treatment you need. Just, oh, I see, I see my therapist once a month for an hour and, you know, I have therapy or whatever. So, and, and I don't even know that you're allowed to really question it. Uh, once somebody basically claims that they have this problem, I mean, and there are penalties against employers who try to retaliate against a, a worker for claiming his right. So this is rife for fraud, right? I mean, you'd have to be an idiot not to uh, take up on this. And you're allowed to do this. According to the Connecticut law, you can do this once a year. Every year, you can get 12 weeks of paid leave. Now, it's supposedly being paid for by a payroll tax on workers of a half a percent on all the wages that are subject to uh, the Social Security payroll tax. So it's like your first $120,000, $130,000, I forget. So obviously, if you're making $50,000 a year, you're paying a half a percent on your entire $50,000, but that's just $250 a year that you're paying in a tax, but now you're eligible to collect $900 a week for, for 12 weeks. That's 10,600 bucks. So the state's going to collect 250 and they're on the hook to give you back 10,600. Now obviously there are going to be some high income people who are going to pay the taxes and they're never going to get the benefits because the, the income is not high enough for them to miss 12 weeks of pay. But the number of people that are high income earners, that's very small. The vast majority of Connecticut workers are going to be able to qualify for this and they're going to be taking off uh, 12 weeks 
every year. In fact, I know exactly when they're going to do it. In the summer, that's when they're going to do it. Everybody's going to come up with a sick relative in the summer so that they can take June, July, and August off, right? Take three months off, take the summer. I mean, why would you waste your, you know, your paid vacation during the winter, right? When the weather is cold, you might as well go to work when it's snowing out. But here's another reason why a lot of people are going to choose to all of a sudden have a relative uh, in need of uh, medical care on this over the summer is during the summer, the kids aren't in school anymore. If you've got young kids in the summer and you're not sending them off to summer camp, what do you do with the kids when you're at work? You've got to hire some type of daycare to watch your kids during their summer break. Well, if you can watch the kids yourself and get your $900 a week, then not only do you save all the other costs of commuting and everything else, but now you don't have to pay uh, you know, uh, for childcare, you save that money too. It is a windfall. You don't have to go into a job, sit in traffic in hot weather at a job you hate. You can hang out with your kids on the beach and collect all this money. I mean, this is going to be a massive boondoggle. Everybody is going to try to game this system. And, you know, even if you end up needing some kind of doctor's note to certify that your kid is sick or your friend is sick who you consider a family member. I mean, how hard is it going to be to do that? I mean, how easy is it for somebody to get a prescription for medical marijuana where it's needed, right? Any doctor, oh, oh okay, yeah, I'll write you a subscription. Yeah, you, you got nerves, you know, you, 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 know, you, you, you got uh, indigestion, uh, you're nauseous. Sure, I'm going to write you a prescription for marijuana. Boom, right? I mean, it's easy. I mean, look at, look at how easy it is to get an online psychiatrist to diagnose you with a condition so that uh, the, the, um, the prescription is an emotional support animal for flights, right? If you have a family pet and you want to take your family pet on a plane with you, and it's not a small pet that can fit in a little bag, right? Because if you have a little teeny dog or a cat, you know, you can put it in the overhead or not in the overhead, you put it in one of these um, uh, little carrying cases and the airlines will allow you to bring them on. I think they even might charge you a small fee, but you don't have to put them, you know, with the cargo. But if you have a large dog, an 80-pound dog, you know, you know, you've got to, you know, pay a lot of money and the dog, you know, goes down, you know, down in the belly of the plane with all the luggage. Except if you have an emotional support animal, you can take that dog on the plane for free. There is no cost because you have a medical condition that requires you to have an emotional support animal. And the airlines have to allow you to do that. Now, for a while, people were bringing on all sorts of weird animals. I mean, pigs, uh, you know, you name it. And so I think uh, some of the airlines have kind of restricted, you know, just what type of animals, uh, you know, can qualify as emotional support. But pretty much most of the big breed dogs are going to qualify. You'll be able to bring them on the plane. But how do you show the airline that, you know, you need an emotional support dog? Well, there's plenty of uh, th therapists online uh, that will diagnose you. You, you, you pay them 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and they, they basically send you a prescription online and they send you uh, the stuff for your dog. They send you stuff to put, you know, to, to put on them, you know, like support animal and it's all this stuff and it's all BS. I mean, nobody actually needs to bring their dog on the plane. This all is ridiculous, but it's political correctness. Nobody can question it. They, you know, it's been made and then everybody games the system so you can take your dog on the plane. It's much more convenient. It's much cheaper uh, than, than doing it the other way. And th this is all nonsense. I mean, in, in theory, I mean, if you really are stressed out about flying, if that, if you really get nervous flying, the last thing you want to do is bring your 80 pound dog with you. I mean, the dog is going to make it even more stressful. I mean, you know, I mean, especially if you got kids with you or something like that. So now you got to worry about your dog. And that's one more thing to go wrong on the trip is you've got this dog. So it's, I would say that in order to bring a big dog on a plane, you have to be pretty confident and pretty, you know, uh, about flying. You're not nervous. Everything is fine. Sure, I'll bring my dog. So this whole thing is nonsense. But the point of bringing it up is it's very easy to get somebody to give you a prescription for medical marijuana or give you a prescription for an emotional support dog. It's easy. So there'll be an entire cottage industry that's going to be created in Connecticut, right? So everybody can come up with a reason why they need to take 12 weeks of paid leave. So this is going to be a disaster for the state because obviously they're not going to be able to afford it uh, with the tiny tax that they're getting. So ultimately, they're either going to have to kill the program or jack up the tax. 
my money is that the tax is going a lot higher because once you give somebody something, it's hard to vote to take it away. So if they pass it, but the original funding mechanism is inadequate, well, they're just going to have to raise taxes. And of course, all the politicians are going to be afraid to state the obvious. See, nobody wants to say that people are faking it, that people are gaming the system and they're not really sick or their kids are not really sick or their relatives are not really sick or they're not really their relatives. Nobody wants to risk offending people that are supposedly dealing uh, with uh, a medical crisis. Uh, so this is just a disaster. No one is going to talk about it and it's just going to balloon. And the other problem is going to be for businesses. If you are trying to operate a business in the state of Connecticut and every summer, all your employees, you know, all your lower paid employees, guys that are making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, if all these guys are taking the summer off, how are you supposed to operate your business? You're supposed to bring in temporary workers every summer. You got to train them. I mean, where are you going to, I mean, th- people are going to have to leave the state of Connecticut if you want to have a, a consistent workforce where they're not taken off for three months every year. Uh, you know, this is a problem. And, you know, in some people, I think some of the employers will even get in on the action, especially if they're like, a, if there's a domestic employee, right? That obviously it's simple. Like, let's say you have a household that has a full-time uh, housekeeper or full-time nanny, right? And let's say they're paying that nanny $50,000 a year. They're not deducting it off their taxes, right? It's just personal expense, uh, but they're W-2, they're getting paid. And what if that uh, housekeeper says, well, I want to take my three months of, uh, of medical of leave to take care of you know, my sick relative. Well, now they can get their $900 a week, but what they could probably do is end up continuing to work under the table for those 12 weeks and their employer could just pay them cash instead of paying them on the books. And they, maybe they slip them you know, $400, $500 cash uh, that's still a savings for the employer because he's paying, you know, less than he was paying before. You know, it doesn't matter about the taxes because they weren't even writing it off. And now the employee gets the 900 bucks from the government and he gets additional money from his employer. So it's a double win. You see, this is what happens. People always game the system. Whenever the government is going to give away money, right, people are always going to figure out how to qualify for that money. Right. So when the government tries to look at the problem and says, oh, well, how many people have sick relatives that they need to take care of or how many people have children each year and need the extra time? Right. So the government tries to figure out how many people uh, may qualify for these benefits and then they create the benefits and they make a budget based on the need that exists then. But what they forget is that once they create this pot of money, people are going to want their piece of it. You know, especially when people are going to pay the tax. When you tell these workers, hey, you're going to pay this $250 a year tax for this uh, medical leave, well, everybody's going to want it because they paid for it, right? Hey, I want my 10 grand. I'm paying 250. And of course, you know, if your coworker is taking a summer off and you're not, you're the patsy that's trying to be honest. Well, now your boss is going to expect you to work even harder because you not only have to do your job, but you got to pick up the slack for all the people who are lying on the beach. So that's another incentive for you to go join them on the beach and, you know, get your phony letter from your quack doctor saying that you got a sick relative that, you know, you need to take care of. And now, you know, you're on the beach too. But so all these people all of a sudden change their circumstances to qualify for this benefit. So it always costs a lot more than you think because now there are a lot more people that need the benefit than who theoretically needed it before you created this massive incentive. You know, the same exact thing is going to happen with this ridiculous program that Camilla Harris is now, uh, you know, touting. Again, free stuff to get votes. This is also kind of a little bit of a reparations angle to it because it obviously is going to Uh, disproportionately uh, affect African-Americans. But she has a program that she's now advocating for down payment assistance, where if you can prove you've lived in certain communities, these red line communities, which are predominantly probably African-American communities, and if you can prove you've lived there for the last 10 years, uh, the government will grant you up to $25,000 to buy a home. Uh, You get it. It's not a loan. You get the money for free. And it can be used to cover the down payment, right, up to 20% of the value of the loan and any closing costs. Uh, So, and this is supposedly going to help African-Americans achieve wealth by putting them into homes and that somehow by owning homes, uh, they are going to get wealthy. Well, it's not going to work. First of all, owning homes is not a way to get wealthy. It's a way 
uh, to destroy wealth because home ownership is expensive. I mean, I know I own homes. They are very expensive to maintain. And so if you want to accumulate wealth, having a home is not what you want to do. I mean, you want to accumulate wealth and then you can spend some of your wealth on a home. But if you're just renting and you're trying to get wealthy, uh, it's easier because you don't have a lot of the costs associated with home ownership. And so what home ownership is going to do for a lot of people who are struggling is going to increase their burden. It's going to make it harder for them to accumulate wealth because they're going to be spending money on mortgage payments, on maintenance, on taxes and insurance and all this kind of stuff. But if you get the down payment for free, right, if the government's going to hand you $25,000 to buy a house, well, a lot of people are going to buy houses even if they can't afford them and even if they don't want them because they want to get that $25,000, right? Now, they don't give you the cash, right? You're probably going to get the credit when you go to buy your house. It'll probably come out. HUD is supposed to administer it. And so probably in the escrow, you don't have to bring any of your own money to the table, uh, but when the loan closes, the seller will get paid the down payment from the government, right? And then the rest of the money will come from the bank. And so you'll end up with a mortgage, but you'll have instant equity in the home. Because if you buy a you know, $100,000, $110,000 home, but the government gives you the twenty-two, dollars $23,000 for the down payment and then pays your closing costs, which could be a few thousand dollars, the minute the loan closes, you now have a piece of property that has over $20,000 of equity, right? So what what is the logical thing to do? Well, let's sell the house. I want the cash, right? Most people don't want the house. They'd rather have the equity. Well, here's what's going to happen. It's very simple, right? So what happens is somebody is going to buy the house. And as soon as they buy it, they're going to find a friend to sell it to. They don't even need a broker, right? You don't need a realtor. You don't need to cut anybody in for 6%, right? Just get your next door neighbor. Hey, I just bought this house for $110,000. Why don't you buy it from me for $110,000? That way I'll be able to take my $22,000 out and then it costs you nothing to buy it. And then after you close on your deal, well, then you sell it to your friend and then you'll get your $22,000 cash, right? And then the next guy can do the same thing and over and over again. So what's going to ultimately happen is you're going to have houses in the inner city, right? Constantly turning over, right? Being bought and sold, bought and sold, bought and sold. And every time someone sells it, they, they, they take their 20 something thousand dollars cash from the government. Now the banks are going to love it because they're going to be writing mortgages that are constantly repaid. They're going to keep getting all the closing fees and all the origination fees associated with this. So the banks are going to love it, right? Because the home is going to turn over constantly. So they're going to get all this volume, right? They'd rather have that than just collect uh, the, the mortgage payment for the next 30 years. They'd rather just have the home sell, you know, every 30 days or every 60 days. I'm not sure how long the process will take from opening to close. But as soon as the loan closes and you own the home, then you sell it to your buddy. And then he, he repeats it and everybody just takes their cash and walks away. And who knows how much? I mean, let's say you have a $100,000 home that changed hands 100 times, right? It's, the government's going to end up paying out $25,000 100 times. That's $2.5 million that's going to be paid out to people who keep buying the same $100,000 home. I mean, this is ripe for abuse. And even if people don't think about something this clever, but I'm sure they will, because I thought about it like almost right away. And if I could think about it, so could anybody else. But of course, you know, if you give somebody a house and they paid nothing for it, they got no skin in the game. I mean, they sure, I'll take a free house. Yeah, I'll move into a free house. I mean, even if you just live in it for a while, just don't pay the mortgage, don't pay the taxes, don't pay don't pay any of that. How long is it going to take them to evict you from your house? 3 years? 4 years? Live there rent free, right? The value of that free rent for all those years is probably more than the 20,000 that you would get if you just flipped it right away. Plus, the other thing that people could end up doing in those circumstances is once you own the house, hey, you own the house. You can do whatever you want with it. Oh, you know, I got uh, all these uh, uh, appliances that came with the house. I got refrigerator. I got a freezer. I got a dishwasher. I got a microwave. I got a washing machine. Sell them on eBay, right? Now I put the cash in my pocket, right? I could sell... The, the, the toilet bowl and the, and the bathtub and the and the basin. I could f sell the copper piping. I could sell the countertops. I could start ripping up the, the floorboards. I mean, I could sell, you know, the, the you know everything in that house could be ripped out and sold uh, to people because you own the house, you do whatever you want with it, right? I mean, so, and by the time you walk out of it, the bank's got, you know, an empty shell. But I don't even think people are going to do that. I think people 
more likely are just gonna say, hey, I've got this equity in this house, I'm gonna sell and I'm gonna get my money. Now, of course, too, they can also just go and refinance it, right? Because now you got 20% uh, down in the house, right? You can probably take out a loan and you can borrow out some of that equity. Now, some of these people may not qualify. That may be the problem because also, not only do you have to live in these poor neighborhoods, but there are limits on how much you can earn. You have to have income below a certain level and maybe the people also have bad credit. So they may not be able to actually get a home equity loan or, or find a way to borrow out that cash. But clearly, nobody can stop you from selling the home. I mean, once you own a home, right? I mean, you could sell it, right? I mean, you can't say that you can't sell the house. So I'm sure that that's going to be the easiest thing to do. I'm sure that they're not going to think about having restrictions that say you own the house, but but you can't sell it, or somehow if you sell the house, the money goes back to the government. I don't think they're smart enough to do that. But even if they are, even if they end up finding a way to prevent people from gaming the system the way I just said it, right, where they just flip the house over, even if they find a way to stop that, they can't stop people from just not making their mortgage payments when they move in there. They can't stop people from ripping stuff out of the house and selling it to their to their friends or selling it on eBay. Uh, they can't do it. And you know, part of the reason that we had a housing bubble before was because of down payment assistance and because so many people were able to buy homes with little to no money down. I mean, a down payment is one of the most important parts of buying a home. Not only because you have skin in the game, right? It took you a long time to save up that down payment. And so you're going to make sure that you pay your mortgage and maintain that property because you want to protect that down payment that you worked so hard to save up. But the fact that you were able to save for a down payment shows that you can save money for the future, which is something you need to do as a homeowner. I just had to replace my roof. Uh, on my house in Connecticut. It's expensive to buy a new roof. If I didn't have savings, how would I have been afforded to do that? So it's not just the ability to save to buy a house. You have to be able to save to maintain the house that you already bought. Well, if you can't save up for a down payment, how are you going to be able to save up for all the maintenance? See, when you're renting, you don't need savings for a maintenance because your landlord pays for all that. You just have to cover your your, your rent. Well, when you buy a house, it's not just covering the mortgage. You got to have money for all these problems that come up, right? And then, so it, it, the fact that you could save the down payment shows the lender, okay, this person is, is responsible enough to own a home. He's able to save money, and so he's ready for home ownership. He'll be able to maintain this property because he's maintaining the value of the collateral uh, for the loan. Uh, and so the minute you let people who can't save up, buy a home anyway, you're allowing people who have no business owning a home to buy one because they don't have the ability to generate the savings necessary to maintain the home. So you're putting people in homes they can't afford and you're putting them in a situation where they got no skin in the game. So they have no reason to make a mortgage payment if the property goes down. They have no reason not to uh, gut the property because there's nothing to lose there. Right? And so this was part of the problem in the housing bubble where people were getting a free gamble. Hey, buy a house with nothing down. If the price goes up, you get the profits. If the price goes down, mail in the keys. You're creating the same situation, only worse, because you're actually starting people off with a down payment. At least when you started somebody off and they put nothing down, they didn't have anything. Now you're actually giving somebody the down payment. So people will get the house even if they don't want a house, they just want the value of that equity. They have a free ride in case the house appreciates, they'll have even more equity, but they can immediately sell the house, right? To pull out that equity. You know, if again, if they don't somehow come up with a safeguard built into the law, which I doubt they're going to do, because obviously, you know, circumstances change, something happens, I want to move, I want to sell my house. If I own the house, you're going to tell me I can't sell it. And then you're going to take back my down payment assistance, right? I don't think, I don't, I don't think anybody is going to put that into the law because that's, you know, that's taking away the something for nothing. And, you know, voters don't want a something for nothing where it's like, you know, where you, you could lose it, where the government could take it back, right? They want to be able to keep what they got for nothing. So most chances are, uh, they're, they're not going to have any of these protections against this. But this, again, this is just examples of the crazy things that politicians will do. Uh, they don't think about anything. They don't think about the consequences. And by the way, you know, Camilla Harris, too, has risen in the polls. I mean, so she could actually be the, the 
the um, the Democratic nominee. In fact, one of the reasons that she rose so much was because of the last debates where she went after Joe Biden, particularly on his prior support for busing. And, you know, the party is now so liberal, so you know left wing that Biden couldn't even defend uh, his uh, being against busing. Uh back when busting was was happening, right? Because Camilla Harris is trying to make it out like he was not in favor of the civil rights progress because Joe Biden was against busting, right? And instead of saying, well, of course I was against busting because busting was bad, right? Instead of defending why he was against busting, he has to come up with a BS. Well, I wasn't against, against busting. I was just against involuntary busting. Well, shit, all the busting was involuntary. Nobody wanted to be bussed. That was the whole point of it. Right? It was forcing busing. And then he starts saying, well, I didn't think the federal government should force people to bust. Oh, you're, you know, so he's talking about states' rights. Instead of just saying that it was a bad idea, which it was. You know, I mean, I would like to see uh, Kamala Harris. I mean, what, what Joe Biden should do in the next debate is basically say, but of course he won't do this because he doesn't have any guts. He should say, okay, uh, Ms. Harris, you criticized me because I was against busing. Are you in favor of busing now? If you are president, are you promising now to uh, to mandate busing? Are you going to bring busing back to the public school systems? Is that what you're advocating right now? Forced busing. Let's see what she says. Because what is she going to say? Because if she's not going to advocate, if she's not in favor of it now, well, then why is she jumping all over Joe Biden for being against it back then? Because it was a bad idea back then. I mean, not only didn't a lot of white people, or in fact, no white people were in favor of busing, but a lot of black people didn't want busing either. They didn't want their kids bust, you know, uh, across town when there was a neighborhood school that was right there. I mean, no one wants their kids going on a long bus ride back and forth into unfamiliar neighborhoods. People want to be in their neighborhood. But one of the reasons it really backfired was they wanted to take, uh, you know, uh, kids from uh, more affluent communities that had more white kids and they want to take those kids and bus them uh, to schools in inner city where they had uh, mostly black kids and they were trying to get, you know, a better racial mix. Well, of course, the, a lot of the white families didn't want that, right? Not necessarily because they're racist. They just didn't want their kids sitting on a bus for 40 minutes uh, going to a school in another neighborhood. And yeah, there was probably some fear that, you know, there could be more crime over there and they were concerned about their kids, especially when you're talking about young kids. You're talking about busing third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders. I mean, who a parent wants that, right? So what happened was a lot of the parents moved out of the cities. They moved into the suburbs in order to get out of those school districts to so their kids wouldn't be bused. And then what also happened is a lot of the more affluent parents who had their kids in public school, just pulled them out and put it in private school. Because once you go to private school, you're not going to get bused. So what happened is these schools uh, then became almost, you know, more predominantly uh, minority, right? And so now all the white kids that they wanted to bust, they're not even there anymore. There's no white kids left to bust because they left the school system. They went to the suburbs and they went to private school. So now those schools became more segregated than they were before because the white kids left in order to avoid busing. And now schools that were more mixed are now, you know, they've lost a lot of the white kids. So now they're, they're, they're less diverse than they were before. So it backfired uh, on, uh, on the government, which is one of the reasons that it eventually stopped. And of course, again, nobody was in favor, but these idiots in government who thought that they, it, it was important to make sure that the schools were diverse. That's not important. The, it, diversity isn't important. What's important is that the kids get a good education. I'd rather my kid get a good education, uh, you know, in a school that wasn't diverse than my kid get a lousy education in a diverse school. And that's true even if I'm in the inner cities. If I'm black and I've got black kids and they're in the inner cities, to me, it doesn't matter how many white kids are in that school if the school is still lousy. What's important to me is a good school. And if there's no white kids in a good school, that's fine. I'd rather have no white kids in a good school than a bunch of white kids in a lousy school. And what the government was doing was preserving all the problems of the public school system. That was not a solution. That was all about pandering to voters by trying to claim, oh yeah, this is going to make things better, right? Government's going to make things better. And Joe Biden is afraid to stand up for it. I mean, apparently he had the guts to stand up for it back then, but he doesn't have him now. And that's part of the reason he's not going to get the Democratic nomination is because he's kowtowing to this and he's trying to apologize for things and he looks weak and he's helping Camilla Harris look strong and she's got these completely idiotic ideas 
like this down payment assistance. And that's just one of them. I mean, she's got a whole bunch of idiotic ideas. And could you imagine, could you imagine if Art Laffer gets his way, but the president who is in charge of the Federal Reserve is not Donald Trump, but Camilla Harris. I wanted to finish up this podcast for those of you, I've been talking for an hour. So for people who have managed to stick it out for the whole hour, I want to do my first live YouTube uh, event. I, I, I mentioned this on a podcast some time ago that I would do something live and take questions and answers. And so the first one that I'm going to do, I want to do it Monday night, right, which is the 15th of July. I'm going to do it at 9 o'clock Eastern time, right, 6 o'clock Pacific time. So people will be home from work, right? Uh, and of course, so that, that's just U.S. time zone. I'm not really sure. You know, obviously people listen to my podcast all around the world. Uh, so some people, the times may not be that convenient. But my first topic is going to be about Bitcoin. And what I want to do, since there's all this press now about Peter Schiff and, hey, uh, you know, they've turned me. Uh, you know, I've got now $2,500 worth of Bitcoin in my wallet because people have donated these Bitcoins. And there's all these articles about how I'm softening up and warming up and how I've changed my opinion. Of course, none of that is true. But what I want to do is... I want to allow all of the people out there, all the Bitcoiners, all the guys who are convinced that Bitcoin is going to a million and that it's the new money and that I'm just an old fool and for some reason I just don't understand it and and I don't get it. I'm going to give all those people a chance to actually turn me, to convince me that I'm wrong about Bitcoin, that it actually is gold 2.0, that it's a store of value, that it's money, all this great stuff. If you think you can convince me, because people keep accusing me, oh, I'm just ignorant. Well, enlighten me. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open it up. I'm going to do it on YouTube, and it's going to be Q&A. And I just want people who believe in Bitcoin to call in and convince me that I'm wrong and try to bring me over to your side. That's your chance, right? It's open, you know, kind of open mic, any question, as long as it's, you know, or not even a question. I want people to try to educate me, right? Give me, give me something. So take some time to study and come up with, you know, your best point that you want to make. Something that you think I've overlooked. Something about Bitcoin that you think I don't know. That if I only knew this, well, then I would come around, right? Then I would believe in it. And I, I look, I've got an open mind, right? If, if you guys can convince me that Bitcoin is going to work, right? And somehow I've just been closed-minded. I've just been, you know, uh, wedded to my beliefs and I just haven't been able to accept this. If you can educate me and convince me, hey, you know, I'll start buying Bitcoin, right? So that's the challenge. So it's going to be uh, on Monday night on my YouTube channel, uh, The Shift Report. Uh, if you're, you know, uh, a subscriber, I guess you'll get an alert when I start it live and uh, everybody will be able to participate and give me your best shot, right? And, and uh, good luck to everybody. Oh, 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 oh,